This is Dark Blue. My name is Jeff Rickley. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the challenges that people face when they choose a life in the arts. On each episode, we'll talk to a different artist about a range of topics, from addiction to depression, to what it feels like to lose a collaborator to suicide. And we'll try to find the tools that they've used to lead healthy lives in a field that has few guidelines. On today's episode, I talked to Travis Egedy, better known as the electronic musician Picture Plane. Since 2004, Picture Plane has been making dark experimental music that blurs the lines between genre, bending noise, goth, ambient, industrial hip-hop, and so much more into something wholly unique. Along the way, Travis coined the term witch house and accidentally spawned a whole new genre. Travis is also the visual artist responsible for the popular streetwear label Alien Body. Through his work with Picture Plane and Alien Body both, Travis has been in the unique position of influencing experimental punk music and modern hip-hop, collaborating with and touching the lives of artists as diverse as Health, Crystal Castles, and Lil Peep. Today, Travis and I dive deep into DIY spaces and the current demonization of artist collectives. We talk about the healing power of psychedelics and the devastating effects of prescription drugs like Oxycontin and Xanax. Finally, we end with some reflections on the untimely death of Lil Peep. Travis, I first heard about you with Dark Rifts. But I know you'd been making music as picture plane a lot earlier than that. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? I was putting stuff out by myself, like on CDRs. Um, um, Really just, it was a very experimental phase. I wasn't really too concerned with having like a, a large audience listening to me or anything. It was really just like a, yeah, definitely a huge personal development time of just like, making music every day in my bedroom just like totally balls to the wall mania like I listen to some of that really old stuff and I'm like wow I was just like really out there it's like just really noisy and crazy just a lot of fun yeah wild stuff but it, it got a little more refined somewhat by the time Dark Rift came out yeah and it's, it seems to me um, you know from, from listening to that stuff you know because Right now, in, in my mind, knowing your last few records, I feel like I have a pretty good idea about what kind of music you make and what sort of territories you explore. A lot of that stuff started changing probably a lot for you while you were in Denver. I mean, you were probably, what, 19 or 18 at yeah. the time that your first record came out, or you put out your first yeah, record. Yeah, basically. 19. So, like, what, what made you change there? You know, like, what, what was it like? What, what influenced you when you got to Denver? Was it a community you found? Was it being in art school? Was it, like, you know? Art school was definitely very influential on my life at the time. You know, I was being exposed to so much new, new ideas and new stuff that I never would have found in high school. I mean, you know conceptual art and you know the history of of painting and I was discovering new bands you know like Black Dice and Wolf Eyes and Lightning Bolt and stuff and just being like 
consuming all types of really radical art mm -hmm. and just like diving headfirst into that. Um, and also, yeah, like um, finding this sort of underground DIY community within Denver at the same time. Um, you know, I, I remember first hearing artists like Wolf Eyes and Black Dice and stuff, and I was like, I was like, I made it a point. I was like, I'm gonna find out where this kind of music is in Denver. I was like, I need to find this, and I did. I, I like, I found this warehouse called Monkey Mania that was throwing all kinds of shows. I started going there all the time, and it was like I had found my people or something. Yeah, you know, these were like psychotic noise shows, super like rainbow freaks everywhere. You know, kids rolling around the ground with wires you know like real harsh noise kind of scene it was so fun and so free I thought this is just abstract expressionism this is all I want to do uh -huh. and I became close friends with the whole crew of, of people yeah and that was kind of the start of my my musical journey I think I mean that's interesting you know it's like finding your people in, in DIY that's such a big thing and I think a lot of people when they hear a DIY community they focus on the DIY. Oh, you're doing it yourself. But like, in essence, we're all doing it ourselves before that too. Yeah. But it's when we find the like-minded people and start to build something out of it that things yeah. really start to change. Um, so was that really when you felt the change when you kind of found your people in Denver? And did it speak to the way that you started writing? Like, did you change anything? Like, did the noise come into the way that you were, you know, doing things? Like, I guess so. It was just all you know. There was just years of of evolution there like um, I started getting really interested in, in performance art and also um, yeah I guess just sort of like the the, the freedom of, of noise and the noise underground mm -hmm. which was it was just really self expressive which I'm a very expressive artist whether mm -hmm. it's my, my painting or my music I think it's like a it's not as refined as it is just sort of ex expression, self-expression. Yeah. So a few years after I had found that place, Monkey Mania, my friends started what was to become Rhinoceropolis, which was mm -hmm. just like they found their own warehouse. And we were totally influenced by this place, Monkey Mania, but we found our own warehouse and started doing our own thing there and called it Rhinoceropolis. That was about 2006. Okay, um, I moved into Rhinoceropolis in about 2007. And that's when I really started, that's when Picture Plane really started happening. Like I was playing shows and stuff at that time. You know, the few years before that, like I hadn't even really started playing shows yet, but right. I was just like a bedroom producer. But the live stuff started because of Rhinoceropolis, pretty much. Yeah, I find it really interesting. I think that one thing that we share in that way is that um, when Thursday started, you know, I did all these basement shows in New Brunswick. And, you know, I didn't have any idea what kind of music I wanted to do, but I wanted to, um, 
I wanted to be able to play with bands like Black Dice or Arab on Radar. You know, the, we used to call them the RISD bands, you know, like the art school bands that came down. From I the love the art school bands. I love Arab on Radar. Yeah, it's so many, so many interesting, <clears throat> yeah, energetic, like showing a visceral side of art. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was conceptual, but it wasn't just in your head. You know, it became a really violent, physical thing. Um, I think that, like, in some ways, my own development as a musician had so much to do with the people that I was talking to, you know, and in that way, art can kind of become like a discussion, or music, more specifically, can become a discussion of, you know, a synthesis, and not just, you know, putting all these influences together, but like replying to something else, even if it's a no, I'm not interested in that, I think it should be more like this, you know, music goes back and forth, and... and I've always found that to be a really interesting part of the DIY community is that the music is so much more alive in some ways because you have this sounding board of each other. It is sort of more of a living, breathing organism, yeah. Um, because it's it's life. It's coming out of the people that are a part of the community and the people that are like living in a space like that, you know. Mm-hmm. At a place like Rhinoceropolis, and for people that are listening that don't know, you know, this was a, a warehouse in Denver that... I lived in that also tons of other people lived in throughout the years um, it was just recently shut down ap- after 11 years so it was went through a lot of different periods um, but the thing with a place like Rhinoceropolis is or other warehouses like it you know it's like it just allows for the spontaneous art to manifest you know just living in a place where you can be loud and free at all times of the day mm-hmm. um, and there's no no rules or no yeah no hierarchy no one really telling you what to do or how something should be or how it should sound um, that's where really amazing art can take place because it's just freedom I don't know and it's you know young freedom there's something really special about being in your early 20s and having like no no rules and just going for it you know and the way that I I think like the identities like sort of develop in tandem together right because people will be like understand that Rhinoceropolis will have like oh it has picture plane it has this artist has this person living there has this and they sort of get like an idea of what kind of place it is by the art that's coming out of it but I think people don't often realize that it works the other way that when you're touring around and you're being known, you know you have this like home yeah. that understands you and that you want to reflect the values and tell people, you know, like this is our idea, this is what we think is cool down here. When, you know, any sort of like attention that I was getting at the, the early part of picture playing, like when Dark Rift was coming out, I was constantly trying to also promote the Denver scene at that time because what we had was was really really strong and cool for a while and a lot of those bands you know were never really heard outside of denver but they were really special it was just like a really crazy cool community that we had there denver's always had a really sort of special music scene it, there's something like in the water there that just like breeds some real crazy geniuses yeah. um and yeah, so I was always trying to kind of hype that up um, and give it some more, as much shine as I could, because I felt it wasn't just me at all. It was, you know, it was all of us, really. The whole scene was was really cool. 
even in Denver, it was hard to get us noticed kind of, you know, like I would, it would be funny, like I'd go on a tour and I'm playing all over the country to these like cool shows and then I'd come back to Denver and it's like I could barely even still get a show in Denver outside of Rhinoceropolis, you know, it was like right. the city took a while to really even notice what was really going on inside our warehouse, but we didn't really care because we didn't need that really um, right it wasn't a grassroots thing to build the outside following it was its own thing because that was what you were yeah. interested in doing yeah and sure sometimes that leads to other things but that's not the point of it you know I think some people see it as like well once I get this going then I'll be able to get to the next level and it's like when you're it in wasn't spaces, about the levels like we were just yeah. doing our thing yeah, yeah. It, it's really I mean it's so rare and special to have people that understand you at all when you're an artist yeah. it's like that's all you need um you know, I think a lot of people who are listening, um, maybe they have a space like this in their own city or had a space like this in their own city. And I think nationally, the consciousness of spaces like this changed um, around a tragedy that happened with Ghost Ship, um, which was a warehouse similar to this. Maybe it seemed to me it was pretty big, though. It was a, a, a pretty big version of this. There were something like 20 people living there or yeah. something. Which, when I know places that also have living spaces, like, caps out around 10, usually. Serious. You know? I can't imagine so, 20, really. So, I think yeah. it was multiple stories. Multiple and, stories, right. Multiple spaces, uh, multiple labyrinth-themed uh, living quarters. Yeah. Um, and for those people that don't know, uh, Ghost Ship had a fire in which 36 people uh, died uh, during an event that they had, an electronic music show that they had. Um, and the response around the country has been to try and shut spaces like this down because they're dangerous. And I think um, any of us that come from DIY music were really affected by this because we imagined our friends passing in. I, I know I had some friends in the ghost ship I did um, too. fire. Yeah. I, it's a real tragedy. Um, but I think that rather than demonizing musicians, it could have been this really great time to talk about, like, why don't we help them get these spaces up to code why don't we you know well, take away some of the fire hazard aspect you know we talk what, about how what I noticed this? after Ghost Ship was just how many people in the, in the general public still like don't know what the fuck was going on like mm -hmm. it, um, it, within like a warehouse community or something you know that it would be on like the nightly news or something and like you just all these comments are just like why would anyone want to live in a warehouse? You know, who are these people? They, they look at them like these, you know... Subterranean sub, creatures. Yeah, subterranean <laughs> degenerate dwellers, you know. Right, and degenerate, yeah. It's, that's, that was what most people thought. And it's sort of almost like, you know, oh, well, they, they deserve it or something. Right. Like, they're, they're just living... They're freaks. They're junkies. They're, they're ravers. They're on drugs. You know, they they deserve to die basically that basically, was what like right. people that was what people were thinking it and it boggled my mind just like how you're like wow this truly is the underground people don't even know what this is right. they don't even know that these are artists like living kind of on the fringes of society for a reason or that they want to you know i just couldn't believe it and you know after that <clears throat> one week after ghost ship Rhinoceropolis was shut down. It was raided by the fire department and police. And I 
I, that was just it for me. I was like so angry and hurt and sad and you know I was heartbroken over a ghost ship and then to have Rhinoceropolis get shut down that was just epic it was crazy and so I was kind of going on these rants on Instagram you know of like the importance of these places and like you know you can't just shut them down like they need help and you know I started getting like trolled heavily by all of these like alt-right people that were like you know they were making it a crusade to shut these places down because they're like they they were posting all types of uh, names and addresses of DIY venues all over the country and stuff and like post uh, you know sending them to the fire department and stuff and posting these memes of you know like Pepe the Frog in like a like fireman's outfit you know like shutting DIY spaces down they were on the side of the police, you know, and, right. and, of course. Yeah. uh, that, I don't know. It's, they're also these horrible, you know, like racist memes, you know, that they were sending in me and just like being so cruel. I don't know. That's like a whole other story, I guess, but I was, you know, <laughs> yeah. Some people were even like taking credit for it that they in Denver that they had tipped the fire department off to shut down Rhinoceropolis, mm-hmm. which I don't know how true that was, but um, you know these are like weird like right wing people that are like rejoicing in the fact that DIY spaces are getting shut down because they see them as like some sort of leftist anarchist hive or something that, <laughs> right. that they want to squash. <laughs> right. That's very Fahrenheit 451. It like, is. Yeah. It's so insane. But that was that was a reality also. And oh yeah, just terrible. I don't know. Rhinoceropolis is still in the process of. They're trying to reopen. Trying to get everything up to code inside. Mm-hmm. Um, they've spent a lot of money in there. It's it's a mess. The whole process, but. Well, you know, I think it it segues pretty easily into kind of a conversation about, you know, why, why would anybody choose to live like this? Right. And it's, it's like, well, you're not really giving artists a choice. You know, this country doesn't really support the arts. No, it doesn't. It it fails to see any difference between art and entertainment. And, um, you know, I think most artists are told to compete in a capitalist model a lot of us do, you know. Um, a lot of us try to make a living out of the art because we want to make art all the time, and that's the only way to do it is to be able to live. But a lot of other countries have figured out ways to fund arts. You know, Canada pays a stipend to musicians. You know, um, I think there's one in Sweden. There's a Den- you know, there's one in uh, Denmark, and uh, you know, places where you could have a place up to code for a bunch of musicians to live in. It's not like we all just choose the rattiest place that we can find. Although, like. It's become a little bit of an aesthetic as well because we've been forced into it. So it's like we kind of embrace what we have. You know what I mean? Like if it's a little bit of like a more raw aesthetic, you know, the idea of living in a warehouse. Now there is something romantic about it because we've been doing it for a while, you know, things like that. Um, And I think like as somebody, you know, like myself who's lived on both sides of the DIY and capitalist model, um, it's sort of interesting to look at both of them and realize that like, after a while, you internalize those values. You know, you internalize, like, if I can make a living at this, then I'm a good artist. And we both know that that's not really the case. We have so many friends 
that are DIY artists that have never made money. They're amazing, right? So, like, do you ever feel it, like you internalize that? Um, yeah, I, I guess so. I, there's, there's, you're right. There's so much pressure in in society, and you know, all those people that I was talking about in you know the comments that just like don't understand why someone would ever choose to live this way. It's like because they're only seeing it from the capitalist side of just like you know how how are they making money or like don't don't they care about right. money don't, they should get a job they're freeloaders or something you know right i don't know i guess that i was when i was really young i was and living in a place like that i was lucky to not be so concerned with money our our rent was extremely cheap i was paying like $300 a month to live in this enormous warehouse, you know, and I was able to kind of scrounge that up every month. I remember dumpster diving all the time, like eating out of the trash, you know, we had no money. It was like living on potatoes and ramen all the time. But I was like totally happy, you know, yeah. I was like really stoked. It was, I didn't really even think about it, honestly. It was like normal because all my friends were doing the same hanging out with a bunch of like anarchist weirdos that were like skilled at dumpster diving like yeah. these dumpster Get geniuses yes. <laughs> dumpster geniuses <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know to us it was it was really fun and, and, and beautiful you know like it was beautiful in the dirt we, we thrived in it really I maybe that's kind of only possible when you're really young I guess you know I'm kind of glad I'm not doing that anymore like scrounging in the dumpster but mm -hmm. at the time it didn't matter at all and um, I guess that's something that just people just don't understand it's it's that's definitely not for everyone that kind of lifestyle right. choice but I chose art first you know mm -hmm. I chose to just make that into my life mm -hmm. by any means necessary and you know, it took years and years before I was ever even making any money from my art at all. Sure, yeah. And I think a lot of people, I worry that young people now, you know, when they're first starting out, they expect to go viral or, or you know, blow up online. And, you know, there's all this pressure to be having all the material goods. And, you know, even within underground music, it's like you're supposed to be like, rich or something it just doesn't make any sense to me like because that's just not how it really works right and um and it's a strange motivating factor you know i think like if um, your if your motivation is just to get rich like that's, there's so many easier ways right? you're going about it the wrong way really <laughs> yeah at this point in the conversation travis and i began to talk about the many deprivations that artists are asked to go through in order to follow what they love Eventually, we landed on healthcare and mental health care. At which point, I asked Travis what his own experience with mental health is. This is the answer that he gave me. There's a great like uh, Venn diagram I saw on, on the internet. It's like um, one circle says like uh, total narcissism the other circle says like crippling self-doubt and then in the middle is art yeah I mean, definitely. and it's like wow how like 
spot on is that of like the struggle of or the the mania of the ups and downs of being an artist I guess um, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> yeah I you know I feel like you know I will definitely struggle with you know bouts of depression or or you know self-doubt or kind of self-loathing and stuff but at the same time you know I've I'm pretty blessed, you know, that I persevered and just followed my own passions, you know, and um, it took me to a place that I knew that I always wanted to be at, kind of, just because I knew that I was doing what I wanted to do. Um, Even though it's not very easy, it's not a normal career path or anything like that, but, um, you know... And I know it's it's di- it's just different for everyone. I don't know. It's every person is totally unique, you know. And yeah. um, you know, sometimes if like I'm struggling or something, I'll just um, you know have to figure out or just like keep telling myself that that I'm on the right path or something, even though it sometimes it might not feel like it. But yeah. Do you have people that you can reach out to if you're in the in the in the stages of crippling self-doubt? Like, do you have collaborators that you can speak freely about this stuff with, or is it like something that you just put in your work? Like, what's the what's the way that you? I'll find like put it more into my work. I'm I'm definitely not the best about talking about stuff like that with people. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, I have lots of good friends and stuff, but you know. I'm more of the type of person that will that will fuel it into my own art, which my art has always been like a very ex- expressive outlet for me emotionally, I think. Maybe that's sort of what's kept me somewhat sane throughout the years, actually, I don't really know, is having like art- artistic outlets. Yeah, I think, you know, a thing that, a thing that always sort of, that always comes back to me and that I think about a lot is this this idea that for a lot of artists it's sort of this double-edged sword where you know that it's good for your work you know that your work lives in you know maybe a shadowy territory you know of the more painful parts of your psyche turned into something beautiful and there's something that we all love about that you know the idea that it's fuel you know that it's something that could burn you up but instead you're using it for you Um, and then and then there are artists that know that they could be healthier but are also afraid that it would affect their art negatively, that if they were to get too healthy, it might, you know, damage their creativity. And, um, you know... I guess that's sort of like a... I don't want to say a cop-out or something, but it's kind of weird to be like, oh, I, I have to be sad or, or fucked up or else my mm-hmm. art is going to suffer, you know? I think that's kind of a weird mindset to mm-hmm. be in, but that's definitely real for people I guess but you don't have to be suffering to make good art you know right. you can art can come from all different types of places it doesn't have to come from pain and sadness only or you know I think for for me for certain um, I've actually seen it go the other way where that I'll be in such a dark place that I'm just not making very interesting art because it becomes almost like a bloodletting yeah you know it's just focusing solely on the negative aspects of my personality, on the worst things I've ever done, the worst pains I've ever felt, and it becomes 
so murky, especially if you're already an empathic person, you let out a lot of yourself and you feel other people's. When you start to dive too deeply into the, the wrong end of the pool, it's really, I think it, it can make your work much, much worse. You know? Yeah, I think so too. Um, I know that... Maybe it's, it's sort of a myth that, you know, out of deep pain comes great art you know that it's it's true but it's also not true at the same time <laughs> right. i think that's the thing it is it is also true though right yeah, because definitely. we've seen so many things oh, that we're like oh that's amazing yeah, definitely true <laughs> i can see the pain there and it's yeah. so fresh and so real yeah but it's not also not a given that yeah that's gonna help your art um i spent so long on the road sometimes that i would just be completely drained you know just completely empty and I'd come home and I wouldn't... What's like the anymore. longest tour that you guys have ever done? I'm going to interject here because I told Travis that we had had seven days off in 2003, but that's not quite right. In the year following the release of War All the Time, we had a year of continuous touring where we took seven days at home. So that year <laughs> ended in Coachella for us. Um, and we were playing the main stage after like Muse, I think. You know what I mean? Some band like way, already way bigger than us by the time we were going on stage. And it's in the middle of the desert. And I had had like scans done that showed like bleeding in my stomach. Nobody could tell what it was. And I was never going to a hospital because I didn't have time between tours. And I got up on stage and just started coughing out blood like the first song. You know, could barely at sing. Coachella. At Coachella. Like the biggest show we've ever played. And I'm just like, it's just blood coming out of my mouth. And I'm like, Ugh. What did you do? So we like made it through the set. I think we cut one song. I mean, we weren't good. We were. It was pretty clear there was something wrong with me. And I ended up like getting like taken away by the medic to an ambulance and stuff after that. And Yo. The rest of it. And that stuff, like you know, the physical can affect the mental. Like it was just so depressing to blow it and feel like I'm working so hard. My work ethic is so good. You know, I'm supposed to be. It's another thing you get. It's like a you have to work hard. You know. Um, well, you can definitely overexert yourself. I mean, touring is exhausting. I don't think people really even understand that haven't done it really. Yeah. Um, just because you're not just everything about tour is not normal. I mean, right. so it's hard to get proper rest. You know, it's like especially if you're you're partying a lot. It just really, everything catches up to you really quickly. Like, you just get exhausted. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't imagine just going for a year. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you have any guidelines that keep you, like, sort of, if, you know, to remind yourself on tour at all? I only ever do real short trips. I mean, I, I just got back from tour just a couple of days ago. Okay. But I was on tour for a month. A month. And that's sort of typical amount of time that I'll tour. Um, I like a month. A month yeah, is a so great... it's so chill. Yeah, it was really manageable. I had the best time. It was perfect, actually. But awesome. I was happy to be home afterwards. I guess I, you know, the more you tour, you also get you get kind of good at it. You know what works and what doesn't. I I love the road. I love traveling. It feels really productive to me, like I'm actually doing something that is real positive or something. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's not exhausting. I want to pause here because I think Travis raises an important point. Physical and mental exhaustion are the norm on the road, and it's easy for people to push too hard. 
I think especially when we're young, we give in to the pressures that we've got to work hard enough to deserve it, that we've got to give everything or else the next person will come along and give what we can't. But I think it's important to bear in mind that this is our art, just as it's our lives. And ultimately, we are responsible for taking care of ourselves. We're going to take a break now and have a word from the people who make Dark Blue possible. Osiris. Dark Blue is part of the Osiris family. Osiris connects people like you with podcasts, videos, and live experiences about artists and topics you love. Visit OsirisPod.com and sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss new interviews, events, and podcasts. Now I'd like to transition to an entirely new topic that Travis and I spoke on. In breaching this next topic, I noted to Travis that while I myself am sober, I'm also a great believer in the power of psychedelics and the kind of healing potential that they may hold. While we are not condoning recreational use of psychedelics, we do talk about our own experiences here. And I saw that you wrote that you had a a psilocybin experience young that you credit with being like sort of a breakthrough experience for you. And I, I, I actually did too when I was young. I took way more than I meant to. I actually totally got it wrong and ended up having like a really intense experience. Sure. That now, even as a sober person, I think like, wow, that really changed my life for the better. Like it really broke me out of some stuff that was not good for me. Um, so I was just interested if you, you know, if you had any thoughts about that or wanted to talk well, about that because I'm interested. You know, what's weird, you know, when people say, when people are sober and stuff, I just feel like there's like a... It's a disconnect or, or a sort of like a, a mislabeling of, of certain psychedelics as being drugs. Like they're not like a, a mushroom. It's I don't know if it's really like a drug like that. Like it's not like alcohol or fucking, you know, cocaine or something like this is something that's kind of really really in its own classification. Right. Like, sure, it alters your mind. Yes. Yeah. And your body too. It's shown the potential it's for addiction yeah. on psychedelics you're not to be going, very low. You're not going to become addicted to shrooms or right. something like it. It's just uh, it's it's something different. Right. If anything, it can it can help with your addictions. You know, it Absolutely. can help get you off them. Like mushrooms really make you look at yourself, mm-hmm. where most other drugs can kind they they can mask yourself. You know, you can hide with them mm-hmm. but something like psychedelics like you can't really hide from a powerful mushroom trip it's really mm-hmm. gonna kick you in the ass and I think that's why you know it does help people get off hard drugs sometimes because it's sort of like hey look you're, you're fucking up basically or something you yeah know, the- so do you mind if I ask you a little bit about your early mushroom experience? Because sure. I find it very fascinating. I think it's a real dive into the psyche in a way that people... And, and, and like you said, it, it's, it's, the, it's the opposite in a lot of ways. I have people who will tell me, like, I think it's the opposite of addiction. It's like, you know, it connects you to this thing that you can't hide from, you know. Um, and I'm just curious to know what it was like, you know. Well, and, I don't know. You know, I... How old were you? Um, I guess the first time I tried them, I was 16. 16, I was my, my first time. <laughs> Where I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, you know, drugs were just really popular. Like, everyone smoked tons of weed. We all started drinking really early. You know, mushrooms were around. They were just around. It was sort of not that crazy, like, to, to 
to get some shrooms or something in high school. And I was like, cool. Yeah, I just remember, you know, started doing them in high school, having these incredible times with my friends. Um, so you took them with friends when you were doing it then? Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember, like, just, like, breaking down and crying one time, like, just, like, pissing outside, looking at the stars, you know, just, like, overwhelmed with the universe, like, right. everything all at once. Um, but it was, like, a profound experience, I remember, just, like, and I was crying not out of sadness, just, like, this profound, mind-blowing, you know, awakening or something. Yeah, gratitude for yeah. the experience yeah. of being alive. Exactly, yeah. something like that. And um, I don't know, you know, it wasn't, like, some moment that, like, changed my life forever, but I, I do feel that those experiences at a young age can kind of I don't know they they do something to your brain in a very positive way that allows you to to look at things differently that mm -hmm. that's all psychedelics do I think they can kind of shift your perspective and make you see things from multiple dimensions at once kind of whereas someone that's never really experienced that they can kind of just be locked into just one way of thinking about something. Mm -hmm. But psychedelics can make you see things from multiple perspectives. Um, which I think is just very, very healthy. I think it's, like, good for your brain, honestly. Especially maybe at a young age, like, in development. Like, it can kind of, um, I don't know, enhance your, your brain a little bit. There's, like, this guy, uh, Paul Stamets. He's, like, a mycologist... Um, meaning he studies mushrooms. He's really, really brilliant. And, um, you know, he talks a lot about how psilocybin and also some other certain types of mushrooms, they, it's a, like a, this term called neurogenesis, mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, it, these mushrooms are literally creating and finding new neural pathways in your brain. Like mm -hmm. they're, connect and connecting certain synapses that weren't there before like it which is it's allowing your brain to think differently or yeah. like um it's like putting new roads and highways into your mind that weren't there before which is fascinating and you know i don't know mushrooms are just very very special i feel like they could kind yeah. of save the world really you know yeah i you know it's really interesting um what you were saying about the pathways, you know, and I think, and, and, and perspectives, and I think they're very, like, tied together because, you know, there's this theory in um, uh, neuroscience about if it, if it fires together, it wires together, right? So if you experience a sense of pleasure when you're doing housework, you know, because of something that's going on, you know, some association that keeps happening while you're doing housework, suddenly you'll associate housework with pleasure and that's it like wiring together that neural pathway will become connected and those things will fire together but I think you know that happens all the time there's all these brain functions that are about like making sure that we know that our body is discrete and different from our surroundings right so we don't accidentally fall off a cliff not realizing where our body ends or something like that or touch a fire um, all these things are helpful you know all these little pathways to tell us who we are and then you know we don't notice the beauty of the stars all the time because we have stuff that we have to do so it's important that our brain like shuts that down and lets us focus on other things 
but that that can get overactive and we can get ourselves into such narrow pathways you know if we do the same thing every day it's all we know how to do anymore and i think psychedelics can break that a little bit yeah that's the the rational problem solving society kind of it's like a very left-brained kind of you know society tells us to just sort of like think a certain way and be you know like alert and awake and problem solving all the time you know something that's like psychedelics completely take you out of that into a more creative and I don't want to say outside the box but it it, it is right it takes you outside of yourself a little bit and makes you see things differently right and I think it's hard for people to understand how that happens but I think it's because that possibility is always there. Yeah. Psychedelics is just an easy shortcut. You know, yeah. I think like meditation, there, there are all sure. kinds of things that you can do to get there, but they're worthwhile things. It's not just some druggies talking about how great it is to get high or something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when I, when I took mushrooms as a kid, I was supposed to do it on a half day from school. I was supposed to do it with my girlfriend at the time. And she, uh, you know, left me a bag, a big bag. I think it was like, it was, it was a, ton of, a ton of mushrooms. And then she called and I took my half and then she called to say that she was had to work, so she wouldn't be able. So I was all by myself, and I thought maybe I should just take her half too, because I had never taken them before, so you I didn't know what they did. Thing. So I ate the whole thing, and then I found out that it was actually supposed to be for us and another couple. And I so I had eaten like maybe four times what I was originally gonna. Damn. And I had like the full e- ego breakthrough, death, ego death. Lost like three hours to not knowing where any you know, but had a experience of rebirth of like being a sperm and like you know swimming around and then having like a a higher organizational you know person that god type say here's five lives which one do you want this one's going to be easy this one's going to be boring this one's going to be this this one's going to be about this and there was one all the way in the end that was like it's going to be really difficult but you're going to feel really happy that you took it if you do it and i was like i'll do that one and like every time i run into challenges now i try and remind myself like this is what you signed up for, man, remember? And I don't know what that means, but um, I found it very, like, it's just something very centering about remembering that. And um, I know I'm not making a case for psychedelics right now. I just sound like a lunatic. You know? Well, it's very, it's so hard to explain those sort of, like, act, like, religious experiences or, like, something that's really, like, touches your spirit or something, which it's just hard to explain that to someone that's never really been in that that moment or something mm-hmm. so but no it doesn't sound crazy at least to me <laughs> okay cool <laughs> people are gonna be like those crazy no, guys that's amazing yeah. that's what um, a crazy story like uh very cool i think you definitely i don't think i've ever taken that high of a dose before i you know the most i've ever taken is the eighth terence mckenna who's a brilliant author and, and scientist talks and has a lot quite about, a voice if you listen to yeah, him speak talks quite a bit about he's you know spent his whole life studying psilocybin really but he would call it like the like the grand dose is like yeah, over heroic anything dose, right? heroic dose anything over five grams you know which is a lot a um, lot yeah but he said you know like the difference between a smaller dose is like parking your car in the driveway compared to like going into the cathedral or something like right. that. I want to like, go into the cathedral. Yeah. yeah. And it's, that's the difference. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I told you, um, about how I got sober. 
Um, I, I had a, developed a five-year heroin addiction that was really, uh, you know, by the end, it was like I was doing speedballs just to go to work at a desk job. Um, That's wild, man. Yeah, it was pretty horrible. Wow. Um, I was spending like $200 a day at the end, 20 bags of heroin a day, like just, just nothing else in my life, basically, you know? And the fact that I have any family and friends left that don't hate me from then is a miracle in my estimation. But the only way, because I tried to get clean so many times. Man, I tried so many times. And the thing that finally stuck wow, was... I'm glad that you're clean now. That's so thanks, intense. Man. I, did, I really yeah. never even knew. I didn't know. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, so the way that I finally got clean was I went to Mexico and I took this therapy called Ibogaine mm-hmm. therapy, which is a really um, strong African shrub uh, the root bark of an African shrub that... But it's, it's particularly successful with opiates, with right? heroin and opiates. Yeah. It's the most successful. It can be beneficial for alcoholics, but it's way more beneficial for opiate abusers because it resets your opiate uh, receptors, which when they... When you pull off all the drugs off the opiate receptors, you feel like you're dying. You feel like you have the flu all the time. I, I would feel... I'd be clean for like 80 days and not feeling better yet. And when you can't you know, you just can't feel better. It's almost impossible to just stay off of it because you're thinking to myself, then, "I don't even want to get high; I just want to get normal." You're like, you know? "Yeah, you just like I just want to feel okay." That's why junkies call it a fix. They just want to get fixed. They don't want to get like high anymore. At some point, you just give up on being high because it's like that's a long, it's a distant memory. But this gave me back just feeling normal, which was such a such a miracle really at that point um i don't think i'd be alive right now because i was already starting to overdose by the time i went down there um like you know i would have like i feel my blood pressure crash and i'd pass out and when i woke up i'd be like i'm so glad i'm still alive you know um damn dude yeah it was it was intense but the ibogaine is it can last up to 48 hours the trip and you get uh, ataxia which means you can't control your limbs you get like total discoordination of everything so you have to stay in a bed. I did it in a hospital bed with an IV, you know, like stuff like that. Um, and it shows you a real life review of the things you've done wrong. And that, like you said, not being able to hide from the ego is is really, you know, or from the id or whatever. Um, it was really intense, you know. Isn't Ibogaine, you know, famously what, like, William Burroughs went to go do, like, in the, the jungle? Mm. You know, there's that famous book he's called The Yagi Letters. I just need to interject again here because the substance that Travis brought up, Yage, Yagi, is ayahuasca. It's another name for ayahuasca, so it is a different substance than Ibogaine. How did you administer it? Capsules, the doctors, so they... Um, wow, yeah. you can just eat it. So they, they uh, derive the root bark because you would have to take handfuls and handfuls and handfuls of it and that's the way they do it in ritual practice in Gabon um, but this is they pull out the active chemical and bring it down to like maybe 8 or 10 capsules um, and the interesting thing that you said about the big doses in Terrence McKenna is they said there's a, a treetop effect where if you don't take enough you get stuck down in the leaves and all you get tangled in is emotion you get pain and emotion all this crazy stuff and that at a certain place you break through that and you can see above it. And it's very intense visually, but you leave behind some of the confusion and the anger and the pain. You just see it like much clearer without any feeling because you're so high above that. You know, you're basically, your system is so flooded you can't experience emotions. 
And then like there's a three day period afterward where all the emotions start kicking in and you you're no longer tripping but you're reflecting on things and your emotions come back and you're like, oh, wow, I can't believe I did that to somebody. Like, cause you see all the stuff you did, you know. I got to like Man. really let go of some stuff in that. <laughs> and you're just like, laying in a hospital bed the whole time? Except for when you have to pee, which let me tell you is like it's like getting up to go pee it feels like when you get lifted out of the bed it feels like you're on the last loop of a roller coaster you know and you're just like you know you're teetering and then and then i managed to pee like literally all over the whole room because they're giving iv (laughs) fluids so you're just so full of liquid dude and i heard like when i was lying back down in bed i heard another person go back like oh what the hell you know and i'm just thinking like i did that i'm sorry (laughs) <laughs> I didn't well, mean to. I peed all over everything. They've probably seen that before. <laughs> sure you know, have. that's probably happened before. But, uh, you know, the understanding of things like um, MDMA, too, you know, for, for trauma. It's just, it's really interesting. And I think these therapies will look very different in 10, 20 years if we can make some. I hope so. There's been such an incredible amount of demonization and you know, the prohibition of, of marijuana and, and psychedelics, it's all based on fear mm-hmm. and just propaganda about mm-hmm. this stuff that is just completely not true at all. Like, it's a conspiracy, really, of, of keeping this stuff away from the public and criminalizing them and, you know, putting people in jail for wanting to explore their own consciousness or their own emotions and stuff. It's truly not a free society if, you know, you're criminalizing someone that wants to explore their consciousness. That's that's like a war on your consciousness, really. It's a... How can anyone say that we're, you're a free person if you're not even allowed to to take a mushroom and that grows from the fucking ground mm-hmm. it's just crazy and public stigma about these things is still so they're still so taboo to a lot of people like oh my god like tripping or you know those are drugs like they're they'll ruin your life like right. you're, you know yeah I mean Trump was talking stuff. about the uh, opioid epidemic and he said in my day they had LSD let me tell you and it's like this is totally different. I mean, we still have LSD also, but like, you know what I mean? To conflate the two, it's like, that's not the same thing. One was like pharmaceutical companies were creating junkies in another, with another name, just not calling them, you know what I mean? Like creating a whole epidemic. Um, we need to stop yeah, equating all these drugs together or, or lumping in something like yeah. MDMA and like hardcore opiates or something like it. They're just not equivalent at all them all being category one under the war on drugs is it's really wrong it really is yeah um but getting away from that a little because i know that we're that's like a whole other yeah we're we're really really. going in which i really love but (laughs) um but getting away from that a little um and talking a little bit about the prescription uh drug epidemic now that obviously that's that's how i got hooked on heroin too by the way was it was through a doctor prescribing me opiates and i think a lot of most people are crazy like yeah, how common that is now. Yeah, at 32. You know what I mean? Like, I became a drug addict at 32. Like, that's... You know what I mean? That's not like I'm just some crazy kid on the streets. Like, I was in a band, rock band for, you know, 12 years before that and never had a problem. So... These companies are still making a killing. Mm-hmm. Like, literally a killing because so many people are dying. But they're yeah. just like... The profits are unbelievable. And it, 
there's like no regulations or anything. And the pharmaceutical industry, it's so extremely wealthy that it basically owns the government. It's it's above Mm -hmm. the government. Mm -hmm. They can lobby and do whatever they want and get the government to just let them do whatever they want because they're so powerful. It's like, I don't know how it got to be this way, but it's so crazy like that there's just no regulations on this, this corporation shit. Our conversation on the opioid epidemic and big pharma transitioned quite naturally to another drug that's having its own epidemic right now, Xanax. I really hate Xanax because, like, I don't ever take Xanax, but, you know, I've taken it a few times. I just, like, don't remember anything or whatever. I'm like, it to me, like, people that take a lot of Xanax, like, it's almost like a, a irony of the drug is that, like, it's an anti-anxiety medication, but it gives you anxiety, like, mm-hmm. if you don't take it. If you don't take it. Which is... That's, like, evil, that shit. Like, it's a cycle. Know, That's a real hard cycle. It's yeah. designed to get you addicted to it. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It, like, it makes you anxious. And I have so many people in my life with debilitating anxiety, family members. Like, I'm not saying this out of, like, anything's wrong with oh, them. Oh, sure, no. You know what I mean? Like, if you need it and it helps, I get it. I, but the I way know. that it's set up... It just can be... E- e- it's so it's just so easily exploitative of the people you're, like... Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy to abuse, too. And I, I do feel that it's way overprescribed. You can just go, especially to young people, like, mm-hmm. you're a teenager, and it's just like, oh, right. you know, like, I am I have these sort of worries at school, or, like, I'm, you know, I'm anxious or something. It's like, right. here's a bottle of Xanax. Right. Like, what the fuck is that? Like, Right, like, school makes everyone nervous. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's okay to feel things, too, or, like, to right. have emotions or, you know... Well, that's a very interesting point, yeah. But we do run from feelings. Totally. In this country, especially. The idea to just, like, put everyone on pills because they're they're having feelings is wild to me. It's (laughs) like, that's like a really dystopic, uh, scary kind of thing. It is. I feel sometimes, like, I feel like when we're talking about, like, you know, the dystopia coming, we're missing all the really obvious stuff right around us that's really already pretty scary, but we're just totally conditioned to accept it. Um, I feel like I'm kind of lucky that when I look back when I was in high school, Xanax was just not a thing yet. Yeah, it probably was around, but mm-hmm. like definitely not like it is now. No, I mean there was Adderall and stuff, but that's mm-hmm. so different. And so, yeah. especially like how Xanax has entered its way into pop culture now. Right. It's just so strange. But I, I, I feel that that's just a younger generation that they've grown up with Xanax being super prevalent, like okay. in their high schools and stuff. It's just everywhere. Right. right. I don't think it's the case that there are any artists like pushing the Xanax thing. It's like that's already part Xanax of the Xanax has already been pushed on They're them reflecting it. From, yeah, that's all, that's it all that they yeah. know. Yeah. It, Xanax has just been there from a really early age. From here, the conversation took a darker turn. And we turned from speaking about Xanax to the death of Lil Peep. I was only familiar with Lil Peep's music because of Travis and the recommendation of Picture Plane. I know it's painful, but can we talk about Peep? Um, no, it's okay to talk about, for sure. I mean, 
I can't lie and say that we were like super close friends or something. You know, we had really only hung out a handful of times. I was starting to become better friends with him, and a lot of his core group of friends um, were, you know, have become some quite good friends of mine now. Um, Lil Peep's manager w- was my is my friend and um you know that's how we sort of first started to come in contact but right away from when i was first starting to see him around on the internet and like see his music i don't know i was just like really drawn to him something about it. i was like this is really special like and i just sort of reached out to him on twitter i was like yo dude like your voice is really amazing I love it. And he's like, yo, picture playing, like, what's up? He knew my music and stuff. So That doesn't surprise me at all, yeah. So we got to play a show together in Houston over a year ago, and that was the first time I got to meet him and some of his whole crew, the goth boy click guys. I don't know. It was just like a cool bonding, really. Like, I felt really... Um, I'm always drawn to people that are very real and and pure i i felt like peep was just really a very pure artist you know like Mm -hmm. he was really doing his thing that was just like really coming out of him his spirit was very fluid i don't know it was just he the music just like came out of that kid is crazy Mm -hmm. like it was he could come up with stuff you know so easily and quickly I, i thought and just like these profound melodies that were just kind of coming out of him at all times. Um, these extremely gifted musical artists. I feel like anyone that is really intelligent or like emotionally talented, which I think Peep was very in touch with the emotional aspect of his personality, you know, I think you're going to be attracted to drugs also mm. you know That's and interesting. Yeah. I don't know it is just like such a huge crazy tragedy because there is so much more that he could have done and and, and given to the world he was really just starting yeah. I think you know I felt I looked at him almost as like a like a little brother or something like I really cared about him even though we only hung out a handful of times well I think that's the thing that happens with artists yeah you know you can see somebody that is younger than you and doing something on their own and you feel a connection right away and like it's like suddenly the, yeah. the two people both feel it and get like oh yeah I'm gonna sure. learn and teach this person yeah. both you know yeah he was hugely inspiring to me and I think also to anyone that ever met him he would was just crazy inspiring Mm -hmm. like any sort of like artistic legend is I don't know it's like they're not even really trying and just like everything they do is just like dope you know it's like that was what Peep was it's crazy it boggles my mind how much he was able to accomplish by the time he turned 21 also just like really like you were that sort of advanced at that young age his career was just starting. That's what's so crazy. Cobain lived till 27, you know? Right, the 27 Club is the, like, too and young. 21 is, like... It's crazy young. Like, you're, you're still, impact. like, a, a teen, like, just yeah. 
starting, even just figuring yourself out, you know, when I was 21, like you still don't even really know who you are yet. You know, you're really, you're just starting to come into your own there. So yeah, I mean, full collapse, like our big record came out when I was 22. So it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, that's the first thing that anybody remembers that I ever did. And he was already gone before that. Yeah. You know, I mean, he could have had really special about that age and that time period. I think you, you really don't give a fuck yet. Like Mm -hmm. you're, I think there's something really pure about that time in, in an, an artist's life. If you are making music or art at that time, but you know, he left us with a bunch of amazing music that I know it's, there's still a bunch of stuff that hasn't even come out yet. Uh, it's um, like tons of unreleased music mm-hmm. that they're sort of preparing to to drop. I guess it's a shame, and I know that you know all his friends and stuff are s- still processing what even happened and like the grief surrounding that. It's just so crazy to me. I, yeah, I feel for all his close friends. I think it's just like a profound loss that will just never. As I was editing and finalizing this episode of Dark Blue, the news came in that we lost Mac Miller, a prominent young rapper at the age of 26, to a drug overdose, adding his name to the list of people we've lost to drug-related causes in the last year. Lil Peep, Mac Miller, Chester Bennington, Chris Cornell, Tom Petty, Prince. As I thought about it, it seems important now more than ever that we concentrate on ways to overcome the drug epidemic. Through the rest of the season, we'll be exploring the healing power of psychedelics, 12-step programs, rehab, counseling, cognitive behavioral therapy, and so much more. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. This is Dark Blue. My name is Jeffrey Rickley. This podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris Podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.